Right, Nicholas, so here we are. Another day, another episode, my friend. Do you know what I did the other day, though? What? Read a book. <laughs> you believe it? I meant that was a birthday card. It was a birthday <laughs> card that you read. <laughs> no, man, it took me like, four days. It took me when, four days to read it. <laughs> so, to rewind a little bit and explain what happened here, I uh, way before Christmas, actually, I think it was back in November, I saw that this book was coming out, uh, and it was called Pete and Whiskey. It went into the Pete and uh, Whiskey or Peeing Whiskey? Uh, no, Pete and Whiskey. I think Pee and Whiskey is oh, probably the, the drunk book that you've read, mate. Um, yeah, it is. No, it's, <laughs> called, it, it's called Pee and Whiskey, <laughs> written by a guy called Mike Billet. And it really caught my attention because, you know, Mike's a big whiskey fan. He's also a geologist. He's a scientist, uh, way cleverer than us when it comes to all this stuff. So I thought that'd be really cool to, to, to read this book and see this insight. And, you know, Pete is a big, hot topic right now, both with regards to how it affects whiskey, also the sustain sustainability aspect of peat as well within the world that we, yep. we live in. Um, so we decided to have an interview um, way before Christmas, just as the book was coming out. Uh, unfortunately, he was so busy, he kind of pushed off till now, which was great because it actually gave me the chance to read this book. And we're going to talk about this in the interview that I did with Mike, but incredible book. Like I, I recommend any kind of whiskey geek out there to, to go out and find this book because it goes into, I suppose it gives you a different angle uh, when looking at whiskey that you don't normally get from other whiskey authors. So here it is in its entirety, my sit down with Mike Billett, the author of Pete and Whiskey. Today's guest is a maestro of the worlds of science and whiskey. Not only is he a seasoned whiskey connoisseur, but he's a leading peatland scientist with a career that spans four decades with a background in geology, soil and water science. He's left his mark at prestigious institutions like the Universities of Edinburgh and Stirling and the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. Throughout his illustrious career, he's been on a quest, not just for the perfect dram, but also to unveil the secrets of peatlands across the British Isles, Scandinavia and the Arctic. His expertise delves into water quality, carbon dynamics, peatland management and environmental change, resulting in numerous research papers, book chapters, reports and articles. But the cool thing about Mike is that he's seamlessly blended his scientific prowess with the art of single malt appreciation in recent years, immersing himself in the landscapes, tastes and qualities of Scotland's whiskey, so much so that he wrote a book on it. Pete and Whiskey, The Unbreakable Bond, is not just his first non-academic book. It's a journey from the lab to the lush, peat-laden fields of scotch. Mr. Mike Billett, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for being here. Did you like that intro? Did you like that little hype up for you? That was fabulous, Mitch. Just, just carry on, you know. We can do this for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the invitation and uh, great to speak to you. Yeah, great to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, you know, like I mentioned to you before this interview, I, I loved your book, man. I've got it right here. So there we go. Just just to prove to you that I did buy it and I did read it. It was great. I, I actually spent a little bit of time, well, quite a bit of time reading this uh, over the Christmas period, the New Year period, 
my co-host Nicholas, he was going to go and read it, but when he found out that there were more words than pictures in it, it kind of put him off a little bit. So he he didn't quite get there with it. So hence the reason I'm doing the interview with you today. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, the great thing was the book delved into subjects that I'd never or heard an author touch on before. And it was done in a, in a, in a really interesting way. You know, and I, I, I really enjoyed thinking about the relationship with Pete and Whiskey in a way that I'd never really thought about it before, which... I'm assuming was one of the the aspects of of why you wanted to write this book, which is what we're going to get into in just a second. But I want to start really basic here, Mike. I've just landed from Mars. I've never heard of Pete before. Explain it to me. Yeah, I mean, Pete is a soil. Let's start off with that simple fact. It's um, and actually, it's a very wet soil. It contains about ninety percent water. Um, when it's dried and used as distillery peat, um, that uh, goes down to 50% water. But it's basically uh, an amazing source of fuel. Um, so it's very carbon rich. And it's also a, a fabulous store of atmospheric carbon. And um, that's one of the reasons it's uh, in focus at the moment. It occurs on all seven continents of the world, not just in Scotland. I mean, Scotland's rich in peat. We have about 20% peat in Scotland. I mean, we have a national drink. I should start a campaign, peat being our national soil. Um, but it's um, it's, a, it's a big part of our, our landscape, and it's a very important part of our kind of ecosystem and our landscape. And, um, you know, people have basically uh, changed their attitude towards peat uh, over the years. We used to sort of use it and abuse it, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, it was perceived as a barren land, a wasteland often that had to be utilised in some way. But now, you know, with the climate emergency, uh, people are very uh, focused on peat and also the lands of peat um, as well. And that's one of the things that I've been been working on. So chemically, you know, it's it's carbon rich. It's made up of partially decomposed plants. And those plants vary from peat bog to peat bog to east coast to west coast of Scotland, from continent to continent. And those partially decomposed plants are basically will accumulate over time. If you've got wet places, um, if you've got a reasonable amount of vegetation growth, over the years, the peat will gradually thicken from a few centimetres to, you know, metres. Some of our peatlands in Scotland are 10 metres thick. And they started forming at the end of the last ice age, about uh, 10,000 years ago. And uh, these sort of unique landscapes now are, are very much part of our um, focus as climate scientists, if you like. And um, there's a lot of interest in their, their restoration and their preservation. And I think that's why it's such a hot topic, hot topic Mitch, uh, at the moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, I um, when I was scrolling through Instagram the other day, I actually saw this guy who there was a video of a guy who basically had it this this huge slab of peat in his garden. He was just cutting it out, and it, it was interesting for me because you know the the the, the comment was obviously one that was quite leading and, and wanted people to to respond on it, and it basically just said, "Oh, you know, what do you think of this guy? This is how he fuels his house." And there was a load of people saying, you know, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this anymore. But then there was some people, obviously, you're going to get those people that say, oh, we've been doing this for centuries. It's absolutely fine. Like, don't listen to all the, the, the scientists out there that are talking about this being bad. What would you say to someone like that right now? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's scaled back hugely. I mean, it was it was hugely important as a fuel source in, in Ireland for many years. It was harvested in industrial scales in in 
Finland, in Ireland, and also in the former Soviet Union. And uh, it was seen as a, as a, as a fossil fuel, um, quite simply like oil and gas. I mean, I would argue, and I do in the book, that you can't consider peat as a fossil fuel. It's a soil. It takes, you know, it grows about one millimetre a year. You know, oil and gas take, you know, and coal take hundreds of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of years to 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 grow back again. So it's used very um, occasionally in Scotland. It's a big part of the culture of the, the Western Isles. If you go to places like Lewis and Harris, um, it's, it's a big part of that. And um, it's done at such a small scale um, that in terms of peat cutting, um, you know, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna have a major impact. And I think as peatland scientists, we often, you know, are challenged by exactly this question. But you know, peat cutting um, is or peat extraction in the UK is now less than, you know, just a few percent. The big issue is horticultural use of peat, and there's a lot of um, discussion at the moment and uh, governmental interest in banning the sale of peat, which may well happen in in 2024. But as a scientist, as a, a peatland and climate scientist, what really kind of worries us are all the other things that damage peatlands. You know, climate change, for example, warming of the the, uh, the atmosphere, huge rainfall events, erosion events. And if you look at things like um, fire in Scotland or on heathlands, if you look at overgrazing, um, uh, if you look at the damage caused by erosion, these things are huge compared to the amounts of peat that are actually extracted or used uh, used locally. I mean, I've got a very similar question, I have to say, when I was in, in Lewis talking about um, talking about peat and, you know, should we continue to to dig our peats in the way we've always done? <laughs> I couldn't go to the island of Lewis and tell them about peat, you know, that's the last thing I was going to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I've been there. They, they, they wouldn't want that. 100%. No. I, I think one of the intriguing, intriguing stats that you put in your book here, um, you mentioned, you talk about Lower Pitsligo, which isn't, you know, too far away from where I am up in Speyside right yeah. now. And obviously Port Ellen being the kind of major parts where peat is dug up for the whiskey industry. And I, I think you you estimate approximately 5,000 tonnes a year is dug up for, for whiskey. Am I right in yeah, saying that's right about the stat? Yeah, around six or a little bit more than that, six to 7,000 tonnes of uh, peat a year are used by the whiskey industry. Um, people, you know, it depends what data sources, but I did that basically by talking to people Talking to the Northern Peat and Moss Company at um, out there at uh, at New Pit Sligo, and of course, um, you know the amounts that are dug up now uh, compared to the past are, are minuscule. You know, if you go back, you know, 200, 150 years ago, the amounts were absolutely enormous when you start to dig in to some of the archives. So there's been a gradual step down in you know peat use by the uh, whiskey industry, but it's. You know, one of the fascinating things, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is that peat has been an ever-present part of the Scotch whisky industry for you know more than four hundred years. You know, in in reality, yeah. so it's the book is very much a celebration of this relationship, but also you know facing up to the issues in the future in and relation I... to restoration and sustainability. And you know, the question, the big question, everybody's asking is, uh, you know, should we be continuing to use peat? Well, I mean, and that's, I want to get on to that, but I want to rewind just a second. I thought that was fascinating in the book. You, you mentioned it there. The amount that we used to use is huge compared to what we use now. And I think you quoted in the book that you look back on records and it was right, it was closer to 36,000 tonnes we were using per year. 
at one point? Yeah, I mean, when you, um, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you've got the numbers in front of you, Mitch, but it, it was, yeah, and if you go back, and I mean, now we're using, you know, we've got a number of sites, probably seven or eight in Scotland, but if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, for example, end of the 19th, you're looking at, you know, most or many distilleries, probably 60 or 70 peat cutting bogs in Scotland. And they were using, you know, you know, up to, you know, a thousand tons of dry peas a year. So you just sort of do the numbers, the back of the envelope calculation, you come up with some quite, quite big numbers. And if you go back even further, and one of the fascinating records I came across in the book was at the Bernahaven peat books. And, you know, for the whole period that Bernahaven was peated, you can read about the amounts of peat that were extracted and they were astronomical at one stage, you know, you know, two and a half thousand tons a year, you know, just for one distillery. I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe the amount of labor and intensity that had to go on on a peat bog <laughs> to well, extract that amount of peat. But, you know, that was crazy. pretty much, if you're on the West Coast, that's pretty much the only fuel in town. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, you look back, in a way, people talk about the fact that we don't have floor maltings, you know, being a bad thing now. And we've gone away from that tradition, but that must have taken so much more peat use. Uh, so from an environmental aspect, I suppose it's quite a good thing that we've moved to this more industrial style maltings now, because they are arguably a little bit more environmentally friendly, right? Yeah, I think so. And I, th I mean, there are issues about how you actually cut the peat, you know, so the big you know, the big maltings like Castle Hill, sorry, the big peat extraction sites like Castle Hill and Aberdeenshire sites were using industrial sort of harvesting methods, whereas the smaller bogs would be hand cut. So there are, you know, people that would like to see a return to that more, if you like, environmentally friendly, small scale. But there is a strong argument, Mitch, to suggest that if you have a smaller number of large uh, peat harvesting areas, you can actually control them much more effectively centrally you know in terms of environmental legislation so for example the northern peat and moss company have quite a strict aftercare agreement arrangement um with the regulatory authorities and that that involves you know replacing the vegetation you know bringing the carbon back getting the peat going again and after they step away from that so you know arguably you know rather than have you know 60 or 70 small peat bogs which are hard to regulate um, you could argue, and some people do argue, that it's better to have a small number of large ones. Terroir and peat. This is a fact, you know, that, that peat is made up from different materials. And that's something you go into in the book, which which I love, because I, I, I that's my jam right now. I love talking about this whole terroir conversation within peat. Uh, you know, I know our listeners would love to get your views on it. So how can different <laughs> peat types affect the flavour of the whiskey, in your opinion? How does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, this is the, um, I mean, there's a chapter in the in the book, which I call Every Peat Has Its Own Smoke. And I deliberately didn't use the word terroir. So as soon as you mentioned terroir, everybody just explodes. <laughs> but as you know, it's a, quite a divisive uh, subject. It's quite a, I would say, quite a bastardised word in many ways. But um, yeah, and it, how does peat affect terroir? There's no doubt that uh, different peatlands with different types of vegetation, um, different plants will produce potentially different flavors in whiskey um and that's just not from bog to bog but also if you go down the peat profile you know if you go to three or four meters down in the peat you've probably got different types of vegetation that originally 
were there and are preserved within the um, bog. But certainly if you look at Orkney peat, if you look at Highland peat, if you look at Isla peat, there are different plants there. So, you know, that, hence the title, every peat has its own smoke. But the, I think the big question is what happens when you give that peated malt to a distiller? You know, how, how can you manipulate or change the actual uh, flavor profile? So, you know, every, so what you can effectively do is to, um, if you like, enhance some of the uh, peaty flavors or some of the phenolics in peat by a particular distillation regime. And so the big question to me about, you know, does terroir exist in whiskey? I think you can show that it does exist in new make spirit, you know, distilled in a certain way. And certain people have, um, you know, there's scientific uh, research to show that. But, you know, after 10 years in a cask, 15 years in a cask, even six years in a cask, you know, can you detect those subtle flavours? And, um, you know, I, I think uh, that that's still to be still to be shown. But certainly, you know, if you go outside the UK and, you know, the book's called Pete Whiskey, The Unbreakable Bond. Well, you know, obviously we're talking about it a lot in the United Kingdom, but you go to New Zealand, you go to Seattle now, you've got peat, local peatlands that are now being used to to make whiskey. And certainly the dramatic, there are some dramatic differences in vegetation. So if you go further afield and really, you know, push out into the different climates of the world, you know, you've got, I think you've got, if you like, real terroir. Um, and certainly some of the whiskies I've tasted from around the world are quite interesting and quite different. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with so, that. Yeah, um, am I sitting on the fence? I, I'm, I suppose I am in some ways, but... Um, you know, in terms of a you know a peatland scientist, without doubt, you can start off with a with different uh, potential uh, flavor profiles. But you know, what happens when you, like I say, it, the whiskey makers get hold of it? I want to go back. Um, you know, you mentioned this ban on peat sales that that we're seeing predominantly in in, in, in horticulture with with garden centres, and I think that that kind of start sparked a lot of discussions within the Scotch whiskey industry, right? Is it and and that kind of led down the road of are we going to have it banned within the industry? Now, you speak to the Scotch Whiskey Association. They assure us that won't happen, which I, I kind of don't really agree with. I think that might be a little bit short-sighted. But I think the interesting thing that your book touches on is there's instances within the whiskey world where experiments have been done which didn't have to use peat. Um, you know, I, I thought that was really interesting. There's a lot of, of that that I didn't actually know about can you talk about these a little bit and, and do you think any of those would actually work within whiskey knowing what you know about peat and whiskey at the same time yeah i mean the uh yeah i mean these these i mean there's a lot of experimentation going on now uh mitch uh by the um swiri scottish whiskey research institute um looking at optimization of peat use which is really, you know, if you walk past a, a maltings and you can smell peat smoke you, you know i instantly think that's a waste, you know, that that should be, you know, being absorbed by the, the malted barley. But uh, I mean, in the past, I mean, people have also talked about using different types of smoke, um, uh, but that's an issue for the for the, for the rules and regulations at the SWA. You know, I think the rules and regs say that, uh, you know, you can't use anything to replicate or replace uh, peat smoke. But, um, you know, maybe that will that will change. And I think there are a lot of um, particularly new distilleries that would like to kind of push the boundaries and do something different. And it's certainly it's not a hindrance to whiskey makers around the world who are producing smoky uh, whiskey using, not using peat, using 
manuka wood and things like that is quite a common one in, in New Zealand. Um, but nowadays, I mean, you know, you can, a tasting panel looking at or, or, or different peat smoke flavours will have to be presented with cressols and guaiacols and these various phenolic compounds. And they will train their nose associated with them. So these compounds are available available chem, uh, from laboratory suppliers. So in theory, you could construct uh, some sort of, you know, concoction, <laughs> for want of a better word, that that could be used to replace peat smoke. And these are material; these are uh, chemicals that are extracted from plants, from insects, for example, um, which are now widely available, um, you know, from laboratory suppliers. So you know, you could, in theory, construct, uh, produce some sort of essence, but I mean, that wouldn't look great, would it, in terms of marketing Scotch whiskey and its unique relationship. And there is, there are, you know, I came across this amazing record of a uh, distillery in Edinburgh that was uh, making a peat essence and actually adding it to, you know, um, somewhat tasteless lowland whiskey and then flogging it off as highland whiskey because it was a much, you get a much greater premium uh, and the flavors were much better. So there are, you know, incidents, incidences in the past uh, of doing that. Um, but I think it's it's about the rule makers, um, to be to be honest. Um, but as, as I said, I know there are distilleries in the UK um, who uh, in who would like to do things a little bit differently. I suppose as someone who looks at the environmental aspect of peat bogs, but also loves Scotch whiskey, you must be a little bit torn. So I'm going to ask you this question. It's probably going to be a tricky one for you. Would you like to see the SWA ban peat use within Scotch whiskey? Uh, no, I, I, that's not a tricky question at all. I mean, I, I, um, I think what I mean, the SWA is is now you know over the years it, it's 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 fronting up the peat issue at last. I think there was a document published this summer called the commitment to responsible peat use. And that really is a kind of, um, I would call it a, a placeholder. So it's basically saying to the Scottish government, which is where the ban would come from. This is our, this is our approach to it. This is going forward what we're planning, what we're planning to do. And this is, this, well, I think one of the issues, Mitch, has been the, the supply chain. So you've got the peat uh, producers, you've got the big malt, maltings, and you've got the whiskey makers. And bringing those three people together is, I think, vital to come up with a solution. And I think in the book, I, I've, I'm quite optimistic about the future of peat use because quite simply, around 80% of our peatlands are damaged in some way. Um, so they are ripe for restoration. And I've worked a lot on restoration science and the science has moved on quite incredibly over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Now, we know we can bring a bog back that's been damaged um, in all sorts of ways. Not we're not necessarily talking about extraction here at all, you know, to full ecological function in quite a short period of time. So the opportunities for the, the Scotch whiskey industry to buy into restoration, and one or two companies are doing this already, uh, Beam Suntory particularly. That's the opportunities to do to do that are huge. And so, you know, rather than just, you know, if, if the if Pete uh, was banned from use by the Scotch whiskey industry. Well, one, what's going to happen? They'll get the peat from somewhere else, and the and the Scotch whiskey industry would walk away from it. So, the, as I said, I mean, there's there's huge potential, I think, and you know, huge potential in terms of a company's profile or the industry's profile to do something really good here. 
And peatland restoration is not rocket science. I mean, basically, you're talking about blocking up these drains that gradually dry a peat out over time and bringing the water table up. And as soon as you do that, the vegetation will come back and the peat will, will regrow. So the fact that so much of our peatlands are damaged means that, that it's ripe for, for restoration. And, you know, a lot of the science now is working quite closely with, uh, with landowners and uh, land practitioners. And uh, I think it's in a very good place. So I hope, my hope is that the whiskey industry will embrace peatland restoration and, you know, the amount of peat you need to restore, if you look at individual peatlands, is not great compared to the amount that, that might be used on an annual basis. Mm. So lock up more carbon each year um, um, using restoration than you would actually use in uh, whiskey making. And that's what I liked about the book, Mike, is you left it on a very high note in that, you know, you saw the positives going forward with regards to this relationship of, of, of peat and whiskey, which you've just said as well so that's i think that's great to hear so let me ask you this now that you've dipped your quill into the world of whiskey literature doing your first i know you've done chapters and you've written papers before but i know this is your first book um any plans for any other books maybe uh mezcal for example going into like that part <laughs> of things or yeah mexico yeah <laughs> i'd have, have to speak to steph holt about that wouldn't i <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, mezcal fascinates me as as another spirit. Uh, first of all, the straight answer to your question is I've, I have got plans, but you know, I'm going to enjoy the ride with the book. I'm going to you know embrace it as much as I can by talking to folk like yourself. Um, and I was quite busy initially, and there's a few you know events are planned for next year. Um, you may maybe outside the UK. Um, the book was re released just three months ago. Um, it's due for release in the in North America. In the autumn so um there's going to be quite a lot around that so i just want to embrace my first book which <laughs> and you know see what see what happens i mean you learn a lot from writing a book um and um there's a lot of commitment there so uh maybe it's going to be a bit like the the difficult second album in, in music you know that <laughs> amazing album it's like everybody says like you know the second one nah 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 but <laughs> Second yeah, ones are really, like I don't know. The second ones are usually really good, though. So I'm looking forward to the second one when that comes out. Whenever that <laughs> happens, I, I, I was going to ask you that question. How did you find you know that transition from moving from writing academic papers yeah. to this? I mean, when you read this book, it isn't just about facts and figures. It talks a lot about your journey through whiskey and especially you know walking in the peatlands and i love that that you went out there with your 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 brother i think it was and, and did all those yeah, treks and, the country yeah yeah and so how I mean, <laughs> quite different like bringing that sort of personal aspect of your life into this book as well as just writing on the facts and figures of pete right and then everything yeah, else i mean i mean that's right i mean the uh you know uh it was it's quite a major transition um, it's writing academic uh, text is quite uh, formulaic. Um, you know, we have a, a, you know, when we write a scientific paper, we have an abstract, an introduction, methods, materials, all this kind of thing. And of course, you know, writing popular science is completely different. And at uh, early days, I realized I necessarily didn't have the tools to do this. So I, I went back to university. I did a creative um, writing course, evening class at University of Edinburgh for nonfiction which was absolutely wonderful. I loved it. You know, basically throw all those rules of grammar that you learned at school out the window and, you know, just, just you know, write and discover your voice. That's what writers talk about, discovering your voice. So I wanted to enjoy writing this book 
um, you know, I've stepped away from my day job in the academic world. I wanted to enjoy this. So it is part, you know, it's got all the things I enjoy in life, you know, travelogue. Um, it's got personal memoir. It's got history. It's got talking and meeting with people. You know, even, even our dog makes a few cameo appearances in the book, you know. So it's a very, you know, it's a different whiskey book, I think. You, yeah. you'd, you'd agree. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's one that is very much much a journey. And uh, But one of the challenges, I think, for a, for a scientist is to get, your science across to a popular audience and to be honest the hardest chapter to write was the story of a piece of peat which is the first chapter so that's the more sciencey chapter but i kind of dripped the science in throughout the book but communicating that surprisingly is is more challenging just because you're so steeped in you know the science of it you've got to step back and you know having people to read it and comment on it. i had some you know people like billy abbott you know read a couple of chapters and gave me good feedback so you know, um, it was, you know, it's been greeted, you know, well by the whiskey world. No, it's great. It, it's very much my own kind of personal, personal journey. And congratulations again on it, Mike. It is fantastic. Okay. Um, you know, anyone listening, Pete and Whiskey, the unbra- Unbreakable Bond, go out, get yourself a copy right now. You know, when someone like Charlie McLean, my good friend, and obviously I, took, I take it you know him quite well, but, you know, just to 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 read what he wrote about this, um, I believe this to be among the most important books about whiskey ever written. Wow. That's that's a wow. nice quote from Charlie, right? Yeah, when I read that from Charlie, I basically fell off my seat. <laughs> <laughs> Final questions for you, Mike, before we uh, we shoot off here. Favourite peated whiskey? Kalila. That's where my journey started. Um, and, you know, I, I default to Kalila regularly. I love that peat sweet um flavor and it's something that also i think is close to modern Torrevec. you know i love mm. that style of, of whiskey and it's not all it's not always peated you know i really enjoy the lighter or, or the unpeated kind of whiskies from you know up in the northeast of scotland um cleanleash old imperial scapa those kind of things so, what was your favorite experience from writing this book going to lewis um i mean you one of the stories I tell in the book is about this famous smoke plant on the bogs of Lewis, which was used by the old famous Shivers plant, um, which used to make, um, you know, some experimental whiskies that your good friend Alan Winchester, you know, helped me help me uncover. And to go to Lewis and see the, the remnants of it and to visit it was quite something you know nobody had ever tried anything as crazy as that before to be brutally honest yeah you know taking peaty lock water putting it through a smoke plant enhancing the peaty flavor you know putting it into brat barrels bringing it around in fishing boats to the ports of bucky and you know taking it to uh glen keith's story that was amazing uh, that was a that blew my mind like yeah it's a whiskey that that's you know sits there in you know has a bit of a you know, mythical status and there's a lot written about it but you know actually to go back and uncover that and and talk to people that you know i met someone who actually worked there you know incredible yeah what was the thing you found out about scotch whiskey on, on doing the research and interviewing people that you didn't know before was there anything in particular um, that blew your mind yeah i mean i think uh, a number of things that yeah there are a number of things but i was amazed by the role of ed ed the island of ed in orkney which i write about and called the petile how important that that single island was for the whiskey industry 
you know, over a, a long period of time, it had the same level of importance as St. Fergus Moss does now in terms of, you know, Aberdeenshire for, for the whiskey industry. So, so that was, that was uh, quite amazing. You actually, you actually went over that. The, the, the story that you tell on how you have to get over there and you actually camp overnight as well. You know, you go pretty hardcore with, with, with some of the stuff in here, Mike. It's yeah. Incredible. Well, you know, you know, I don't do so much camping as I used to, but I absolutely kind of love, love that sort of stuff as well. And, you know, and the discovery of the Bernhaven Peat books was in the archives of the University of Glasgow was also quite special as well, because, you know, there you have records of basically every single person, what they did, you know, over the whole, you know, from about the 1880s up to 1960 something, the whole Bunnahav and Peak period, every single person, their name, what they did, what they were paid, the time when they started getting workers' insurance, the periods when people went to war, you know, get that whole social sort of di dimension. And that's one of the things I love about the book, Mitch, or love researching the book. And also love about the whiskey industry is this relationship to to landscape and people. You know, Dave Broom writes, writes about this, of course. But, um, you know, it's much it's much more than whiskey. You know, it's about communities and uh, the past and, and the future, I think. Thank you so much for jumping on. Congratulations again. And hopefully next time we can chat about your book or your second book over a couple of drams. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for the invitation, Mitch. Great to talk to you. Mitch, that was a super in-depth look at what's going on with the world of Pete. Really interesting. Super geeky in, in the best way, right? Like it's like, in order to understand, like it's not, it's such a complex cat, like just a, a, a topic anyway. So for us, for, I thought you guys did a cracking job kind of covering all the main main, main aspects of that. And yeah, what were, what were yourself? What were your thoughts? Now, now having heard it back, like, are you just listening to it going like, God, is that what I sound like? My, not, my voice is so annoying. Or like, what what, what did you take out of that interview? <laughs> no, it's going to sit down with Mike, man. Um, really nice guy. Seems you know? like a good dude. Yeah. And, 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 and just really happy for him in that he went out and managed to do that book and write it. You know, like we said in the interview, that was his first time writing a book, so it was a big deal for him. And I think he did a really good job. Yep. It's, it's not an easy task writing a book. Um, and, you know, I kind of know that because I might be dabbling on writing my own book right now, Nicholas. In crayon? Oh, in crayon, man, yeah. that's so good. I feel good for Matchstick, you. man. Good for you, laddie. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. I'm, I'm looking forward to, 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 to getting a read of this. So. And, and one of the things that Mike told me as well is that's the first copy already sold out. So he's on to a second copy. It's coming over to North America shortly, Nicholas. So uh, all the Available on there, we'll Amazon? I'm assuming it'll be on Amazon, yeah. Um, I, I I went old school and bought the 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 paperback version of it, so quite nice. To, I, I don't know. What, do you do you read books on on Kindles or do you read them like hardcore? I only books? buy books, regular books. I don't I don't actually read books on a Kindle or anything yeah. at all. I think it's good for traveling, but I think you know it's quite nice to actually have a proper book in front of you. Well, more than that, and usually unless it's like a in my I never have a huge catalog of books mainly because when I read a book. I actually pass it on to somebody. Usually if I'm like, this is a good read, it happened. Funny enough, I was just telling this story. This started because when I left university, I was in Spain, uh, just like, like getting away from it all. And some guy just came up to me on a beach, like some older dude who was like in his 60s. And he was like, um, you should read this book. It's fantastic. And just handed me a Harlan Coben crime novel. And then I read every Harlan Coben book. And it's the, I was telling somebody the reason I really enjoy Harlan Coben uh, crime fiction is because 
that that moment and it was like this is so cool and you just like like pass it on once you're done reading it and that's what i started to do so every time nice. i read a really good book like that i'll pass it on when i buy like a whiskey book or something that's a bit more something f- like that i would keep and use reference. as a tool to go back to and reference yeah. yeah exactly i hold on to things like that but every other book that I've, like novel wise I've, I've kind of read and passed on so uh, but you actually bought a, a physical book that you had to turn the pages and did you have one of those little sponges to wet your finger so you could turn the page and not <laughs> have to lick your finger? <laughs> well, you know, like I re- referenced in the interview, mate, I don't think you'll like it because it's not got not got that many pictures for you. So you'd be screwed. No, I know. Uh, I heard that. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks very much for tuning into that amazing episode. Mitch, thanks for conducting that interview. As always, you are a champion for our industry. It was a really great... And thanks to Mike as well for coming on and, and giving us such insight into the world of Pete. And for those of you out there, be sure to, to to check out his book online and get a copy of it delivered. A real book. You can get it on Kindle, but get a real book just for fun and then pass it on to someone else. But again, guys, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.